Hello and welcome to another episode of Midiara Meets, where we talk to all sorts of people who work in sound and music. On the show this time, <clears throat> we've got Norman Cook, uh, Fatboy Slim, DJ Quentox the Ox the Rocks, um, one of the biggest DJs in the world, um, one of the most prolific remixers and producers. Literally one of the reasons that I got into making electronic music is through uh, Norman Cook's music, through Better Living Through Chemistry, uh, You've Come a Long Way Baby, which was huge f- across the globe, and beyond. He's just an absolute hero. Uh, you can support the podcast by donating. I do do all this stuff by myself, and if you do donate, you get a shout out, and you get added to the MIDI arpeggiation hall of fame. So thank you very much to Jason McManus and Joseph Farty for your donations. It's very much appreciated. Um, It really helps to just keep this thing going. But let's get on with the show. And the first thing I asked Norman was about his musical beginnings. My early memories of music as a child are very, very strong. Um, Both my parents loved singing and music not professionally or anything like that they just they just loved it so there's always a lot of music around and i just my first memory of the power of music was that on long car journeys we would often sing just to break up the fights and the arguments we sort of sing and it was that because there's five in my family and we could all sing all right so then when there's a little ford zodiac full of us singing and we would do harmonies and stuff like that there was this power mm. that really struck me of, of when people sing together when you make music together something happens that really excited me and really empowered me and it wasn't just because it stopped the arguments it was like there was a kind of the, the noise that those five voices made became bigger than the sum of the five parts and I remember just thinking God, this is, this is really exciting I really like this and constantly over my career since, there's been little moments when, when I feel that again. And, and um, I suppose that's probably what's kept me going for so long, is I still get that little thrill. I mean, the, the, the last time I got here, I did a, a friend had their 50th birthday party just before lockdown, and we got together a little pickup band because tons of our friends were all musicians. So there was various musicians. Oh, and, and we just, we got together and rehearsed and played like five songs. And just that feeling of being in a room and just playing along with someone. And like, at first it sounds really rotten. And then there's that moment where it kicks in and you, you there's this noise that, like I said, is bigger than the sum of the parts. And I've always loved that, that power of music. Amazing. And what sort of songs were you listening to in the car? Oh, we were playing, um, there's a lot of Carpenters, a lot of Beatles, Lot of Peter Paul and Mary. That was what. That's a really they're really easy ones to sing for those younger viewers who uh, don't know who Peter Paul and Mary. They were like a kind of um, they were this sort of this sanitized version of sixties um, protest singing. Okay. They they were they were they're very beautiful harmonies, but they would take Bob. They sung resung all Bob Dylan songs, but kind of took all the grit out of them and made them <laughs> a lot more radio friendly. And yeah, they were sort of the, the, yeah, they were the sort of uh, the acceptable face of of, uh, of um, folk, you know, folk protest songs. So a lot, I learned a lot of sort of Pete Seeger and Arlo Guthrie songs and Bob Dylan songs, but sung in a beautiful way and very, very much lending themselves to harmonies. 
Nice, yeah, because there is a great power to, to like choral groups, isn't there, when people sing together. Even when two or three people harmonise, there is like a real beauty there. Yeah, and there's and and it just it, it, there's a power, but there's an emotion and there's a a, a feeling of uh, there's a sort of collective feeling. Because I remember it was it again. I was sort of inspired because we were singing songs like um, "Blowing in the Wind" and 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 sort of protest songs and songs about unity and togetherness. And I was like, oh god, this really does feel like we're you know we're one person, one being, and one world. <laughs> amazing, amazing, yeah. And I didn't realise you were one of five as well. That must have been quite a fun sort of upbringing. I was the youngest of five, which I think, if you ask psychologists, that explains a lot. Okay. (laughs) The youngest is like the last one who gets away with murder, but feels they have to show off to make their voice heard because they're, you know, because they're the youngest. Completely makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, great. Well, I mean, yeah, your your sort of early part of your career is very well documented. So I think in terms of talking about the House Martins and talking about your early sort of formative stuff, you, that's all certainly been covered. But when, yeah, you, when did you move to Brighton? When was it that you first moved to Brighton? I can't remember what year it was. Uh, I moved to Brighton to come to Polytechnic when I was 18. You'll have to do the maths. I'm 57 now. Okay. Uh, yeah, I came down here to go to college. and But I'd, my sister had been at university here the two years. She's two years older than me, and she'd been there. And I saw, I used to come down and stay in Brighton for weekends with my sister. And I'd kind of fallen in love with the, the vibe of the place. And um, so when it came to time to go to college, I, I didn't care what not a course I did. I just knew what city I wanted to be in. <laughs> Brilliant. And uh, yes, yeah, so I, I came down here to go to college and just never really left. Amazing. You've got a 2-1 in... in yeah, British yeah. Studies. Combined Humanities. There you go. So you did, it wasn't just about the place you managed to... Yeah, but ironically, ironically never used it. I, I had a deal with myself and with my parents that I would... If I was going to do go to college, then I would not be in bands. Well, it's because I'd been in bands with Paul Heaton and that caused me to fail my A-levels first oh, time round. And then... Um, so I sort of said to myself, well, there's no point in going to college and then quit, you know, doing a year and a half of it and then running off and join, uh, being in a band. So I, coming down here, that sort of moved me away from Paul. So the band I was in with Paul kind of split up. And um, so I just promised myself that I would stay out of bands. But that meant I just threw myself into DJing, which stood me well in later life. But it was, the, the, but the ironic thing was that when... All the time that I was at college, I worked in a record shop and part-time. And I knew that the uh, the manager of the record shop, he didn't employ graduates. Because he said, basically, you know, that people finish college and they say, right, OK, I'm going to work full-time now. I train them up to do all the buying and everything like that. And after about a year, they fuck off. <laughs> and so I, he told me that all the way through. So when, when the time came, I told him I failed. He trained me up to do the buying. Six months later, I fucked off. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So, sorry, Graham. (laughs) Yeah. So, ironically, the only only one, the only one honest, decent job I've ever had, I actually lied and told them I didn't have a degree. Mm -hmm. But it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it was never supposed to be vocational. My master plan was always to be in the music business. I love that. Yeah, I think you had that spark from... From from early on, and also yeah, being in the house, Martins, you all off went. You all sort of went off to do big things. Yeah, yeah, 
apart from Huey, bless him, who really didn't want to be, he didn't like enjoy the the uh, the attention and the the lifestyle of of uh, all that. So he went back underground. But the rest of us, yeah, I mean the rest, I mean we were all sort of show offs and. It was lovely. I mean, the, my relationship with the housemates is, is that you, you kind of, it's like your first sexual encounter. It's like <laughs> not necessarily your best, but you'll you'll never forget it. And Very you know, true. So I will never I will never forget the, the, the they were they were my first, and we went through so you know you know being on top of the pops and you know all those things going through them together. So I'll never forget that. But yeah, ultimately we were all like a, any relationship. We were kind of pushing in different directions, and we're a lot of better friends not being married to each other. Hmm. Anymore. You did mention a funny story about um, you doing the longest, the world's longest burp. Paul oh yeah. Said that you'd done the world's longest burp. <laughs> yeah, Archbishop, Archbishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and his wife. Have you ever that. managed to beat that we, burp? Have you ever done? No, no. Because I tried to do it when because <laughs> I can't remember. Paul reminded me or somebody. It was in a. It was in an article I read. You, yeah, Paul phoned you up and said about it. I think. Yeah, no, he said, article. "What was the word you used to say that you could say in one burp?" That's just you know, we three three years on the road with the band, you know, with four lads at that age, and you know, silly things go on. And... It's brilliant. That made me laugh a lot. Um, yeah, so, and, and you sort of, um, there was a bit of a hip-hop scene in Brighton at that time, or, or, the, or you were you... I was trying to instil, instil a hip-hop scene. I'm not sure that you could actually call it a scene. No, it was just, I, I just, I really loved, uh, I really loved hip-hop. I really loved, it, it reminded me, because I, when I was a kid, punk rock really influenced me, because it was like, it went from, you had these pop stars, to, look, anyone can do this, you know. Here's a drum kit and a guitar, and now form a band. And I really liked that. And that was how I got into actually properly playing music. I wasn't that good a musician, but it was like, you know, fuck it, let's start, let's start a band. And the and, and hip hop had that sort of same thing that if you if you weren't a DJ, you could be an MC, and if you weren't an MC, you'd be a break dancer. If you weren't a break dancer, you'd be a graffiti artist. And it's like everybody was getting involved in stuff rather than just and that really turned me on, and I really liked the music, and the, and I just I sort of totally bought into that whole b-boy culture thing, which is really strange being a you know white <laughs> middle class suburban kid, but you know you just buy into it. Mm-hmm. And there were, and in those days there was just a very small amount of us that were into it, and out of that I was probably there's only about four of us who were over eighteen, <laughs> and the rest were all these kids, and they just loved break dancing and and graffiti, and 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 so I just like. I don't know. I just kind of became, they used to come come around and like dance in my in my because well they all live with their parents so they used to come and hang out at my house and oh, line nice. on the floor and do break dancing and it was it was lovely it was really nice um, little bunch of kids it's it's quite funny every now and then I bump into them and of course they're all now in their forties or whatever and they go oh yeah yeah do you remember those, those hip hop jams but it was just something that I enjoyed doing and so yeah we used to put on these sort of under 18s hip hop jams. Uh, nice. Just to give the kids somewhere to go, and I love that multidisciplinary thing about um, hip hop. Like you said, the graffiti—it's like a three-dimensional space of, yeah, break dancing, all of those things that came together. It was like the crew. Uh, it was way beyond just the music, wasn't it? Although the yeah. music's the, the driving force for it, but it was, yes. Yeah, I mean, similar, similarly to punk, and similarly to you know, punk was like anyone can be a journalist, anyone can do a fanzine. And then, so there's punk, and then there was hip hop, and then there was acid house. That for me, they were the three great revolutions 
which said, you know, you don't have to bow down to the man to do this and you don't have to be that talented. Just get out there and do it and do it for yourself. And you never know, you might just shake up the whole industry and, Definitely. Uh, you know, and, and, and some people did very well out of it and some people didn't, but they had a great time trying. Um, but it was, yeah, it's that, it's that independent spirit, that sort of frontier spirit of, you know, we're not going to live by your rules. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do this on ourselves. Always, that's always really turned me on. Definitely, yeah. Um, and, and years later, you did have uh, contact with The Clash um, when you released Dub Bigger to Me. Mm. For all the wrong reasons. <laughs> but well, it ended initially. up being good, right? It ended up being... Yeah, yeah I ended up being friends with them. Is that, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah it's a, an, an interesting way of uh, meeting your heroes is to be sued by them. No, it was just a missing... Those were the bad old days of sampling where you had no idea what was, what was uh, um, um, legal or illegal or what was allowed. Yeah, they, um, you did talk about the fast-changing... Uh, rules of sample clearance because it was a bit yeah. of a wild west it was wild west days wasn't it so there was nothing set in stone about using these things to samplers to um, record stuff and put it in, in your own tracks um, yeah but I did like that you said in the article that I read that they got in touch with you and said can we have some money and you said of course you can <laughs> you know it seemed like quite an amicable uh, mm. amicable oh we were going quite fast it was just a bit touchy at the start When did you pick up your first sampler? What was the first moment where you like sampled something, played it back? My first sampler was the Casio CS1 little, looked like a... Uh, the SK1. SK1, no. Is it SK1? The little, it was like a plastic toy thing. Yeah, it's got like eight seconds, uh, eight seconds of memory, eight bits. No, 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 no. Like one second of memory. Was it one second? You could pretty much get a burp in it, <laughs> and which of course I did. There's lots of burps and farts and playing tunes on them. You couldn't get the full Desmond Tutu burp in that one. No, 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 there wasn't enough, no, it wasn't enough sampling time. Um, yeah, which was just a kind of toy, but, they, but I just really wanted to, you know, get my hands. So the first one I had was S10, Roland S10. So I think you had four seconds, which you could have in four one-second ch- chunks. So you could like a, k- a kick drum, a snare, a hi-hat and one other noise in it. Or you could get a four-second loop. Nice. Uh, and Where did you get that? And did someone show it you? How did you? How did it come into your consciousness? Uh, that was the first one I could afford. I mean, I was aware... When I first... Uh, I was making remixes and we were using like a, a, a bell delay where it would loop on itself, but you had to be so, to get it in time with the track was so difficult, so there was no MIDI or anything, it would just loop within itself. So you had to get the speed of the loop the same as the track you were working with. And then you could re-trigger it off a kick drum, so you could trigger like a loop, but it was very, very rudimentary, and that it involved having a proper like, bell delay. So when we were in studios, we'd do it, but when we were at home, we just had to kind of think, well, that's how long it would be, or I used to do cassette edits where you would just you know just do your own little edits and edit the drum the drum beat together mm-hmm. and i think i actually it was my friend i think it was my friend andy boucher who had an s10 and yeah it was just the first one i could fall because when i first started out there was the fairlight and there was the what was the other one the sinclair emulator 
Yeah, I mean, like, so yeah, I mean, they're all huge machines, yeah, aren't huge they? Huge machines. I mean, and a fair like, like, a fair like cost, <laughs> cost the price of a medium-sized house. Yeah. And was the size of a medium-sized room as well. So, um, yeah, no, it was as soon as they were, it was affordable. And then um, the first actual sort of professional one that had the kind of bandwidth you could really actually make a record out was S900. Mm-hmm. Which soon begat to an S950, and then I kind of, I kind of stuck there. S950 did everything I wanted it to do, um, and you could get like 49 seconds of memory in it. Wow! Which was enough to make whole tune. I mean, whole Fatboy Slim tunes came completely out of one S950. By the end, I had two. That gave me. Yeah. 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 You, um, but rather than going to the S1000 was... or. We, yeah, why uh, was that? Why did you... Not, what was it about the S1000? Because I knew how it worked. I knew it inside out. And when they brought out the S1000, it had a different kind of page operating system. And I'm like, oh, I can't be asked. This, you know, I know this one. And I knew everything, you know, I knew every way the filters worked and everything. So I just stuck with this. You'll see a lot of this in my career, just being a Luddite. I love it, man. It's so it's good. Just, you I know, if, I, if, if something works for you, why buy the next one? I spend half your life reading manuals of the next thing along. Exactly. And, and, and I'm like that with phones and computers and... Me too. Oh, nice. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was, I was one of the last people I thought I was last for people to know not to have a smartphone. I'd, I used to get Nokias from Hong Kong <laughs> yeah. because they were discontinued. And they would be so old, that even though they're brand new and boxed, the plastic would start chipping away because it was just the plastic was that old. Mm. But yeah, so um, I've always been a... Some, some call it Luddite, I call it late adopter. I like to give everything five or ten years to see if it's, you know, around to stay or whether it was a flash in the pan, you know. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. No, I love that you kept that because, yeah, you, you must have had such an amazing flow with the S950. Like, uh, I did have S3000, S3200, um, and, and the manuals were like that. And I do remember just getting lost in stuff when I first started yeah. playing around and just being like, wow, there's so much. So I can completely understand why you did that. There was, there was one feature that you mentioned about the S950, which was, was it the reverse loop feature? Reverse loop, yeah. That was a very big thing for me because looping the end of the sample, you can turn it into a note. But if you loop it forwards, it has a little click on it. But I worked out the reverse loop. We'd go to the end of the sample, come back, and we go like that. So it, so it would normally remove, if you tinker around with it, it would move the clip. So it meant that anything within reason, any one note you played, you could turn it into a note that you could hold. And the S1000, for some reason, didn't do that. Yeah. And so it, uh, yeah, that was, that was one major reason for not getting it. I was like, it's really complicated. <laughs> it doesn't even do that. It doesn't even do the thing that I need the most. Exactly. Um, I, I always find that with the SH-101 as well. Uh, you know, the MC-202, like the smaller version, that's got LFO delay on it, so you can press a key and it'll go... But the SH-101 doesn't have LFO delay. I'm just like, why did they put the great feature in like the little box and not like the main one? It's, I know. It's, it's almost like, it's, it's like you, the people who invent technology don't really know what they're doing. It's like oh, they, they just get caught up in algorithms and big ideas but I, I it, it's often like the, the simplest thing that people like like the push button on the phone these people going oh my phone doesn't recognize me i have to look at it to, to activate it's like well it used to have a button they just like an on button yeah or a function button yeah but it's yeah it's um i'm for everything in my life as soon as i find something i really like they discontinue it then i have to like buy old ones like ipod classics 
Really? And yeah, and, and, and all those things. It's like normally by the time, you know, I said I'm a late adopter, normally just as, when I get to something, they've just discontinued it. It <laughs> could be good because it means it's really cheap. It could be bad because everybody's hanging on to them and no one wants to sell them anymore. Yeah, I, it, it's definitely like a bell curve, I think, with things going out of date, like, for example, like uh, synths and retro game consoles and yeah, things like iPods as well. There's like a sweet spot, which is like seven or eight years after they've been cool when they're like dirt cheap. And then you get a few years after that, they suddenly become vintage and retro mm, and yeah. suddenly everyone's f- pulling out their sealed boxed versions that have never been opened. Um, I'm exactly the same, man. Yeah, I, I love the old stuff and I do embrace it because it can still be used, you know, it can still be used. It's not obsolete just because um, people... Or it could still just be an interesting curio. I just realised you're going to be the first person ever to look inside my secret cupboard. Sure. Which, for those of you watching in black and white, looks like a chest of drawers. But in fact, it's a false cupboard. Oh, and shit. it's completely full wow. of redundant technology. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> iPhone 4. Basically, all my old shit gets put in here because one day it'll be, I don't know, being What's that? used as a prop in a movie. That's a Walkman. Oh, wow, that's cool. Got yeah, Walkman's Walkman. cal- <laughs> calculators, all, every phone I've ever had. Laptops. Um, Wow. Because no. also, uh, like, hardware... Yeah, just no one uses SCART anymore, do they? <laughs> there won't be hardware soon, so it will... I don't know, it'll just be a curio. If, you, if you've got the room, if you've got a secret cupboard like that, you can put it in, I'll just put it in there, and then 20 years later, it'll be really interesting, I reckon. Exactly. God, yeah. Yeah, people go crazy for it. Yeah, man. I don't know, I told him before about my secret redundant technology cupboard. I thought you you look like the I'm sort of person it. who might appreciate Absolutely, it. Absolutely, man. Yeah, I'm like I uh, I volunteer in charity shops. I work in charity shops, so I'm into all the the weird and wonderful things. Um, yeah, and also with the S nine fifty, you mentioned about and and I guess just with sampling in general, um, you mentioned that the the breaks were sort of layered. You you would you would try to have sort of a, a double layer to your break. Mm. Well, it goes back to the Glitter Band and David Bowie records. Just had two, two drum kits on it. It was no. It was more in terms that we used to used to love sampling the breaks because nothing had that that flavour and air. And we and I used to try and recreate it. Use really old like a sixties snare and use old compressors and reverbs from those days. And just I think the air just sounded different in the late sixties and the seventies. And so trying to get that vintage sound, I just found impossible. So using brakes, you've got that sound, but a lot of the time they didn't have the punch. They didn't have the, the, the bandwidth and the bottom end. So I found that if you use two, normally if you use two drum kits, but then programmed to them to, to play the same pattern, it just made it chunkier. And it just meant you got more power in brakes. Brakes that had character, but no oomph. You could back up and give it, so you had the oomph out of one and the character out of the other. I love that approach. Because so many people talk nowadays about layering your drum kit, but it's pretty much just that, just throw in a few, um, yeah, throw in a few hits and see what works together, whereas you did have a bit of a... a well, method. people used to, when, the first time I, um, I learnt so much from, uh, I did a re- first remix I did where we got the multi-track from America, was Kid and Play, Do This My Way. And I can't remember what the producer was, but it was hearing how... He constructed it, and he had a he had a drum break, and then but then he had a, like a booming kick underneath that, and then he backed up the snare a bit, so he had an extra snare, and then he had one little 
just like a, a, a looped hi-hat it's really scratchy and it's like wow that's how you get it to sound like that but I just want wait one stage further rather than beefing up the kick the hat and the snare I would just have two drum kits playing the same break and obviously the one with more character would win out that's one you'd think it was but in fact it was kind of two of them but again it goes back to the glitter man you know that that that, that sound of two drum or Adam, early Adam the Ants you know two drummers it makes for a very powerful backbeat. It does, doesn't it? And also as a spectacle to watch on stage when there's two drummers, um, there's a band called The OCs that do it. And like just the synchronicity of two people, it's quite a hypnotic thing to sort of see mm. uh, as well as hear. <laughs> and if you're going back to me singing along to Peter, Paul and Mary and my parents, I mean, imagine those two drummers just looking at each other, just locked in and thinking, how busy, when we both play exactly in the pocket together. That's the thing, it's like not two drummers playing different things, two drummers just playing exactly the same thing. They must feel that power when the two of them are really locked in. Definitely, yeah. And like sort of a, a sort of intangible communication between them where they can probably, you know, communicate without mm. actually say it like now. James Brown yeah. used to do it and there was always they always had his like his main drummer. So the the new drummer, the newest newer drummer, was always trying to impress the other drummer. You know, they're always trying to like out, you know, kind of really kind of sort of mesh with each other. And if not, the drummers, the second drummer would come and go, and there was always the main one. Right. Wow. That's so cool, man. Um, and also the S950. We're not going to talk about S950 all day, but uh, it was mono, right? Was it something yeah. mono? And do yeah. you think that affected the the, the breaks, the, the sort of punchiness of it? Probably. Every nice, nice again. Most of the breaks that I sampled, or most of everything that I sampled, I'd always check it left and right first, because sometimes the mix would have more of the drums in the left side and the left reverb, so you've got a drier sound. Mm -hmm. So I would choose, when I was sampling anything, I would choose whether I used the left side, the right side, or I monoed it. I'd always kind of compare, just to see if it was... Because often, especially inside the 60s records, they put the drums more on one side and they put the reverb of the drums on the other. Mm -hmm. So if you just took the right channel, you'd get a much cleaner drum sound. Exactly, just like those classic Beatles songs where you can just listen to one side and you just get like vocals and bass line. Yeah, that's, they, they took it a little bit too far. <laughs> I remember once playing uh, one of the first clubs I played with, played down here, playing a Beatles tune, and I didn't realise that the sound system was wired up appallingly and you only actually got the left channel, so I put on a Beatles record and all we had was the vocals. Mm. <laughs> I was going, what's the, what's... <laughs> I thought you were going to say it was like the karaoke version. There's no just instrumental. I think I might have done it well. Much better to do it that way round. Just playing the vocals and the and the reverb of the drums doesn't doesn't really cut it in a club. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's brilliant, man! And what were you sequencing the S nine fifty with? What were you sequencing those? those Atari um, STFM. Atari running Creator. Creator. Yeah. Again. They brought out Notator, and then everybody went to Steinberg, Cube, uh, Steinberg, and then Cubase, and then Logic. And I just stayed with Maybe Creator because it did all the things I wanted it to do. Still use it now. Do you still use yeah. it now? Yeah. Amazing man. Do you have yeah like um do you have backups of? I've got about yeah that was they, that the the Atari ST was one one uh, computer that became very very cheap. Yeah. Like about two pound fifty. You could get them in record and tape exchange. I've got about 10 of them. Brilliant. Which is good because they do die from time to time. 
Yeah, they do. Yeah. We got from our school, our school, like giving away the old computers and we got like STs for like a fiver or a tenner when we were like 15 and 16. We we're like, yeah, make tunes on this. It's really good MIDI on this thing. <laughs> well, there is. There is. I, I still, I mean, I, you know, everything, everything up until the last thing I did in, the last thing I did actually using that full setup was um, Rizzle Kicks and they just laughed. I mean, I, I think... <laughs> That was the end of it for me because they just kept, they just laughed all the way through. And then when anybody then, because they had a big hit with that tune, they did tons of interviews and everyone said, oh, you know, what's it like working with Norman? And all they just said was like, you got to see a studio, man. He's antique. <laughs> <laughs> he's still using an Atari. And, yeah. and <clears throat> yeah, they did make me feel a little bit old fashioned. But no, it, it, it again, you get to know, it's like if you spent ages learning how to play a guitar, and it had six strings and it did all the things that guitars do and you learn to get everything out of it. And then someone invents an eight-string guitar. It's like, you know what? I got happy with six. Wouldn't know quite not to do with those other two strings. And I'd have to relearn how to play. And so I'll just stick with the, the, the six strings, which most guitarists have tended to. If I, I kind of wish that technology was like guitars because, you know, most guitarists would argue that, you know, a 57 Strat sounded better than a present-day one. The same can't be said for electronic instruments. Apart from some of them. Yeah, apart, apart from, from the 303. Like the 303, yeah. Um, which is absolutely seminal and designed to be like a play-along for a guitarist. <laughs> yeah, I've had ironic. some weird revelations. Do you know who who advertised the, the, the 303 when it first came out? Uh, what, like a company? No, uh, an endo- a celebrity endorsement. Um, I don't, I'm trying not to say Rolf Harris. <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh, I got no, Peter Stringfellow. No, Oscar Peterson. Right, who is that? Oscar Pe- Oh, uh, a, a great um, jazz pianist. One of oh, the really? Great jazz pianist of the fifties. Right. Wow. And uh, yeah, he was kind of um, yeah, very much old school jazz pianist. And he, uh, it wasn't like Herbie Hancock where he's like, I'm exploring new things. He was like, I need it to plod along and just play the background so I can do my jazz piano. And so, yeah, he was in the photos of the original 303. Um, oh, really? So, well, <laughs> well, I can't afford a pickup band. I use the 606 and the 303. <laughs> you imagine Oscar Peterson playing along with the really rudimentary bass sounds and a drum either. <laughs> it, it must exist somewhere. I just like the idea that he just decided, I'll sod the guitar, I'm just going to like you know, get electronic machines and make some electronics of acid house or something with it. Well, I think it's probably the, the idea is that, like the fact that you haven't heard of him, it was big in my house when I was growing up, um, that he would be just playing club gigs and he couldn't find, find, afford a band. So there's him with his lovely piano and there's little <laughs> 606 and 303 perched on the top and just playing. Play. But I think that such musicians did exist in those days. You used to have... Nowadays, he's gone the other way around because they'd have, like, chaos pads... Where they play, they use themselves as their own backing band. But in those days, I remember the you know the, the people who you know sit there and they just go and they play along to it, a little drum machine. You you did a remix of Eric B and Rakim. Uh, was it paid in full? I know you got soul. I know you got soul. Yeah, that was was that one of your earlier? Yes, my first ever, was it first, first ever remix. Oh, okay. oh, first oh, ever oh. remix, and that that launched the whole. Because basically, I 
the house martin's just split up and then it's like what are you can do now and like i don't know the dream is over and i but all the while i'd been in the house martin's i've been djing and making sort of proto cut-up tunes and all my friends who I used to DJ with like Cold Cut and Tim Simon and people like that. They were all having hits. I'm like, I want that's the music I like. I don't want to be in this, you know, white pop group. <laughs> and um, and then one of the one of the A and R men that I'd been working with when we were signed to Chrysalis, just he just he knew, you know, he was like the club A and R, and he just said, Oh, what would you what would you do with this? You've got the rights to. Um, I know you got soul. And we would think this is, you know, everybody's doing remixes nowadays. What can we do? And I was like, well, there's an acapella on the B side. So even if you haven't got the multi track, you could still put it over whatever you want. And he said, mm. what do you mean? I said, well, you could loop other stuff up. And, and I wasn't quite explaining it well enough to him. So he said, oh, I said, shall I do a demo? I've got a little four track at home. And um, so I demoed it with using a loop of uh, the Jacksons, I Want You Back. And played to him, he went, yeah, it's brilliant, let's put it out. I'm like, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> studio, just, and I didn't have a sampler, so I just did it by editing the loop of the Jacksons over and over again. Really? Wow. And he said, we'll go and we'll go and I'll put you in the studio and we'll do it properly. And I didn't, though I'd really, in the housewives, I'd been really, I was watching the engineer and talking to the producer more than the rest of the band. I really kind of liked studio, you know, I was getting into studios, but I didn't feel confident enough. So he put, they put me in with, guy called Danny D, Dancing Danny D, who was quite a hot sort of uh, um, dance producer at that that moment. And they put me in with him and he kind of showed me the ropes. We did the f did about three remixes together as Double Trouble. And and that just, it was literally within a month of splitting up for the house I had this whole new career as a remixer. Super, man. Which was um, a very happy, one of, one of a succession of happy accidents in my career. Yeah, man. I think you make your own luck to a certain, you know, like sometimes the universe delivers amazing things. Um, but also, yeah, you know, your, your own positivity and your own drive and your own energy, I think, will bring... I suppose it was having the balls, it was having the balls to go, look, look, you know, I'll knock, knock something up tonight and I'll play it to you, you know. I suppose there was a little, I was angling a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and you, um, uh, you worked at the SL Beats Company. I worked, that's the studio I used to use. Yeah, yeah, is that, oh, was it, yeah, that was the studio, right, yeah. yeah, it's on Dyke Road. Yeah. Next to the Booth Museum. Yeah. Do you know the Booth Museum? Have you been there? Yeah, of course. Well, I used great, to work next door to it, yeah. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. It's one of those weird things with Brighton. No. It's weird, quirky, yeah, weird Brighton <laughs> tourist attractions that nobody really goes to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the, the people who live here for 15 years, they go, oh, I've never been there. What yeah. is it, telephone booth? You go, no, it's like loads of dead animals. It's great. <laughs> but yeah, the, um, what was, yeah, what was that place like to work at, the SLB company, that studio? It was, uh, it was nice. To, there's a guy called Kevin who ran it who's a l lovely eccentric and yeah it was just a kind of it was it was a studio it was at the top of my road and um it was it wasn't a, like a commercial studio it was the 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 owner want, wanted to be a musician so he built it for himself wow and he sadly never really made it but he let me use it uh, let me rent it off him and it was quite good because i got used to Rather than going into different studios and having to sort of work out different setups, and I would just go and work there. And I would, you know, at one point I was probably using it three or four days a week, every week. So got to know the, the thing. And the engineer, the in house engineer there, became, has been my engineer 
for a quarter of a century since Simon oh, Thornton. Thornton. Yeah. Yeah. So great. I met him there, and yeah, so I worked there. I can't remember how long, probably three or four years, until I realised until technology meant that I could do stuff at home. Until kind of ADATs came in, and I could afford because I because I had like um, yeah, I started with a sort of one four four Porter studio. In when I was in the house mines, and then but then I'd gotten up to like a I had an eight track reel to reel and a twenty four channel desk at home, so I could write and do stuff. But I never felt confident enough to actually record anything there. Um, and then one fateful night I did, <laughs> one fateful night I ran out of time doing a remix, and I was I was I knew I had an idea in my head, and it was like six in the morning. And then the next the next session needed to come in, so they're like, "You've got to go." So I just took I just took all the bits home and finished it, and it had to be given in like the next day. So I just did it, finished it, mastered it at home, mm-hmm. and nobody know nobody went. This doesn't sound like it was recorded in a professional studio. It sounds <laughs> like it was recorded in your bedroom, and that was the light bulb moment for me. Mm-hmm. And it just sounded better. It just sounded more gritty and less polished, and realised that that's what. I'd, you're looking for a lot in music. It's not necessarily polish and perfection. It's like that vibe. Yeah, the rawness. I mean, I definitely remember that in, or you can hear that in Better Living Through Chemistry. The sort of the rawness of it. The because um, that album really did change. It changed a lot for I think yeah, the, for me personally, but my group of friends and I know like a lot of people across the globe, even in the US as well. That album really just sort of landed. Um, I think Damien Harris described it as being a compilation album. Well, it kind of was, because by that point we'd had seven singles. But in those days, dance music was never on album. It didn't, you didn't bother releasing albums, and if you did, they just completely tanked. Right. And so you just put out 12-inch singles. So I think we were up to about the seventh 12-inch single, and then The Prodigy came out with uh, their... Was it the first album? Jilted. Um Music for the Jilted Generation, which is the first album of uh, first of our ilk to release an album, and people it worked as an album. Mm. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, you got to do an album. We're like, oh, God, I don't, we don't do albums. And Damien just went, well, we've done seven singles, do three more fillers, and put them out, and that's it. That's the album. So it was, yeah. I mean, most of uh, most of the first, most of Better Living Through Chem- Chemistry had been already been out on twelve inch. So right. it's like, so it was a kind of greatest hits. Um, first of which was Santa Cruz. 1995, which is a hell of a track. Uh, and then, yeah, everyone needs a 303 after that, going out of my head. Uh, you did also release a thing, I think the B-side to, um, I could be wrong, uh, the, the B-side to Rockefeller Skank had Tweaker's Delight on it, which was like the the, the TB303 line from Everyone Needs a 303 in like yeah. a, a new form. Uh, that was an amazing thing to get on the back of... on the. Well, I just... Making that kind of music and and creative DJing, your acapellas and and things like that, and bonus beats were a great tool, and I liked doing that. So I used to, and of course, in those days, everything had to come off vinyl for you to sort of play it out. So there was no CDs or anything like that. So you could put things. It would be nice to just delete things out. So yeah, I, I like. I used to call them DJ delights, and. Um, I did, a, I did a couple of bootleggy albums of, called DJ's Delight uh, where I'd just loop up acapellas or things for DJs to use for mix, you know, mixing tools, we used to call them. Mm-hmm. And so if there was anything that, that I thought 
I'd run things off for myself just for when I was DJing. And um, yeah, and, and it, it's, it's funny because lots of other people picked up on it. And they were like, oh yeah, you always used to put acapellas on the visa. And, you know, with W to me, we put acapella on the visa just, just so it could still be sampled today, you know. And mm -hmm. and, and I, I, liked, I liked that kind of, on the one hand, sort of, democratizing it by saying well you can all have the parts and you can all but also you get kind of more um use out of it when other people use it in different ways and do their own remixes and stuff like that and i'd always really enjoyed it when people put things on so i made it a point of doing that and star 69 was an acapella on that one there that started yeah yeah started as um yeah i get deep and um oh there what is there one on no, there is one. Oh, there is one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got the, I've got a dual. I think I've got a dual release, a two vinyl single release of Star Yeah, well, no, I, I, I remember mixing that. I like it was just so much fun to have that a cappella to play with. Yeah, and I remember Calvin Harris telling me that he, when he first started, he he said I just used to use all your DJ delights, <laughs> and that was like he said that was how I learned how to put a track together. So the things like that. I mean, things like that it just like make my heart go boom. The idea that I was somehow involved in his. You know, it, it, because in those days it was like you would just learn little snippets off other DJs or pick up things and there was an awful lot of crate digging and an awful lot of, there was no without any information highway. There was, you just pick up, you know, and why did, you know, well, what is that weird B-side or, you know, or, uh, you know, acapella bootleg albums and ultimate breaks and beats and things like that. It's just like, there's other people on the other side of the world doing the same thing as us and... You know why are we doing this? And nowadays you could just chat to each other, you know, and swap ideas. But there was a, it was a lot more difficult to swap ideas, and you know, it happened. In, and it, but it was a lot more exciting when you did meet up with someone that was doing the same thing as you, or they go, "Oh yeah, I love that thing you did <laughs> three years ago. You put that bit on." Yeah, people like DJ Shadow as well. I think was doing yeah. similar things, um, going into sort of underground buildings that are just stack full of records and. And doing out, I, th I always think there's a, like an element of sort of detective work to it, you know, going through those samples and noting them down and, and yeah, all that stuff. It's quite a. What, what do you think? What record has sort of most sort of popped out at you when you're putting it down, looking through sort of random records? Is there any particular moment when you played, when you found a record and was like, wow? Well, I've sort of got my copy of. Take Your Praise, Camille Yarbrough, which is the Praise You sample. I've still got that with the price tag, eight ninety nine. It's like, that was the best £8.99 <laughs> I ever spent. Um, and... Yeah, so ones that I've sampled, because sometimes I sort of forget about it, and, and then, you know, six months later, they'll be going, what is that? What is that sample? Do we have to clear it? Or, or somebody's phoned up, and <laughs> we think we need to clear this. And yeah, some of them where I've had to put a sticker on the front saying, you know, reminding me what, what that's where the sample for so and so came from, right, just for yeah. historical purposes. But yeah, so I suppose, yeah, there's a, a, a copy of um, Tracks of the Vinyl Dogs, volume two, I believe, which was just a, a kind of a, a bootleg of um, kind of mashed up beats, but it was introduced by Lord Finesse, who said, mm -hmm. um, Right about now, welcome to volume two of Vinyl Dogs. Right about now, uh, you're here with no other than the Funk Soul brother, Lord Finesse. So here's how we do it right about now. <laughs> and um, yeah, because that, I mean, I suppose that was my, one of my greater hearing that and just going, oh, I sort of hear a rhythm if we chop that up a bit. So um, yeah, that was probably my greatest find, was that little song. Yeah. 
of that track as well, you mentioned that you'd the first, the beginning part of that track and the end part, you'd sort of, you'd nailed it, but then you went to Simon's house to do the middle bit? Yeah, because he right? had internet and I didn't. <laughs> he had a, he had some program, the, the, the slowy down bit, he had some program that he downloaded off the internet. But it wouldn't work on my Atari right. because my Atari couldn't do internet and it didn't have all enough power to do what to do that thing. Hyperprism pitch changer. Alright, if you say so. <laughs> and and Simon had just found this thing and said, have a listen to this, and we were like, Whoa, we've got to use that. And I think it was just like the next tune we were doing happened to be Rockefeller's Gang, so we we're like, let's do that gag. But it involved, yeah, it involved going around to his house recording that bit on his house. At his house, and then bringing it back on on a dat, and then editing the two together. Which, in my mind, was like everything I'd read about the recording of Bohemian Rhapsody, mm. where I, which is one of the greatest sort of recordings. And I remember watching a documentary or, or reading about how they'd done it in sections, and then had to splice them up, the reel to reels together, and how they would. Yeah, just the recording process of that, in my mind, that was my version of that. Obviously, it's very <laughs> rudimentary compared to what they would do it up to. But in my mind, it was my, it was my Bohemian Rhapsody. That <laughs> we spent so much time, we actually had to drive from one studio to another to, to record certain bits. But yeah, it was simply because, yeah, I didn't have internet or a, a computer powerful enough to run whatever that programme was you just mentioned. Yeah, and an amazing sound. I don't think anyone had done... Anything. There was nothing that sounded like that. The sort of loop point thing that you did then. It was. I'll warrant. I'll warrant. If you if you could track down that and put any tune back about it, I think it pretty much says the same thing. Will it really? Yeah, that's all it does. <laughs> well, it does. It just stretches it out to an infinite, reduces it into bits, which eventually. Yeah, I mean there. I mean, it was, you know, the original and and and, and grungier version. I mean, you could kind of do it when you, uh, with um, CDJs. You can speed up the loop point to it goes until it goes... Can you? Yeah. If you just keep doubling up the, like the thing, it eventually it goes... And then you can play it, you can play it off the, the deck. Nice, man, nice. I know James Wiltshire of the Freemasons, and he, he spoke to me when I, uh, ages ago about about when they played that your track in the office was it Dave Seaman was was um the manager of the DMC office or and Could've they been. just called everyone in to listen to that track and they were just mesmerized by it by the that midsection and what right. you'd done and how you'd done it you know yeah he well that was all down to that was Simon's little 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 stroke of genius I can't take the credit for that but my only, my I only take the credit for was having to fight tooth and nail with the record company to have it on the like the seventh on the single version. They're like, you can't have that on the radio mix. I'm like, why not? They said, he said, because it just sounds like the record's broken. Like, that's why. <laughs> that's why I want it on the radio because people are going, what the hell? My radio is just going because it's like some kind of drug, you know? Like it's like sort of keto keto vision of your ears and yeah no that that, that my heart yeah it, it took longer to fight to get the to leave that bit on the radio version than it did to actually record it isn't that funny yeah it's like warp speed just craziness and you did also talk about um the, the video for that that you didn't like uh the video for for the rockefeller skank and that's when you saw um the guy who did the praisey video, Spike, Spike Jones. Jones. Yeah, that's when you saw him, and you wanted. You well, said, he actually left. 
Oh, wow. He left this in my hotel room while I was filming the Rock of Skank video and thinking, Christ, this is just a load, whole load of cliches thrown together with no um, imagination or flair. What am I doing here? And then I just found this in my... Uh... Norman, can I read it out? Yeah. Norman, I like your song a lot and I saw this guy on Hollywood Boulevard dancing to it, so I made you a video. I hope you like it, Spike. That and that was a video. That was a video of Spike amazing. on his own dancing to Rockefeller Skank, including the slow down bit. You can imagine what he was doing to that, doing the kind of uh, the Torrance Community Dance Project. There's also a photo of a woman who's behind a sign that says "Microwave Miracle Steamer." <laughs> and I don't know what she's doing. And I had no idea who Spike was. It, it was just in my hotel room when I've checked in. And I was like, who's Spike? And the record company went, I think that's Spike Jones. It's like he's, and he'd just done, he'd just done that Björk, It's So So Quiet, big production number. Mm -hmm. And I knew, I, and I was like, and then I've watched a couple of his videos, I was like, I like your stuff. And yeah, I was knocked out that he, but that was great because it went from making overpriced, unimaginative videos full of cliches to making cheap videos that broke that made people genuinely smile or yeah. upset them or it's funny thinking back on it how much I had to fight because that video was another one where the record coming which went yeah you can it's, see, it's, it said, can... it's interesting but we need to make a proper one <laughs> I'm like what do you mean a proper one so well that's kind of funny but we need to actually actually make a professional proper one I'm like no that's it that, trust me and uh, yeah I think you were right man you were right with that um you, and that was great because after then they after then it's like you know we're, let's let's not do let's not do these again it comes back to that punk thing it's like what's the point of just doing it the way that everybody else has done it just for the sake of it and if you've got this other idea it doesn't matter if it's you know cheaper or yeah and it's the same with using my own studio rather than being at SL it's just there's something that translates and there must be generations of, of, of musicians who their demos have always sounded better than the, the finished thing. There's that demo-itis thing where you record something and you just go, it's not as good as the demo. It Definitely. happens to all musicians. There's must be people like all the way through their career have always thought that. It's like, just put your demos out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just always tell the artist, this is the demo, by the way. We're just doing the demo here. Yeah, uh, yeah I think there was a Adele who did live around here. Um, she, yeah, I can't remember if it was Rolling in the Deep or one of her really big songs. It was the demo uh, recording. Also, the Firestarter vocal was apparently recorded in a hotel room somewhere. And then they tried to they tried yeah. to do it in a studio later and you're just like, nah. Yeah. The fucking hotel room, that was it. <laughs> yeah, you're right. There's something about that sort of, the, the sort of energy that's in that stuff. Um, yeah, and also, I guess just, I mean, you've, you've talked extensively about all of your videos and, uh, yeah, I mean, they've, they're, they're brilliant. They're really entertaining. They, they sort of marry with the song really well. Like, um, just before recording, we sp spoke about Your Mama, which was a fun one with people's sort of arms being pulled out of control when they listen to your song. Um, I wanted to ask you about one that I don't know if anyone does ask you about, which is Build It Up, Tear It Down video. Mm. Where was that shot? Where was that? That was the that? original Big Beat Boutique, which was the Concord, the original Concord, mm -hmm. just by the pier, which had been our clubhouse and our... It was like our cavern club. It was a really dingy little venue where where uh, where sort of Skint Records was born and where Fatboy Slim was born. And um, 
well, it, it spawned the the term Big Beat came from that really that club, which is that we were. I was very proud of you know. If you think that house music was named after the Warehouse Club in Chicago, garage music's named after Paradise Garage, and Big Beat was named after the Big Beat Boutique. So it was yeah that that was and that had, for about three years we'd been doing it every fortnight and it was just getting more and more crazy and more and more people coming in and we were like we've i think we're onto something here you know there's something there's definitely something going and there's this movement and then bumped into like the chemical brothers and john carr and people in london who were doing the same thing as us and it was like it just became this thing so that was our the sort of brighton version of that and then just when we were really beginning to break big it, they they sold and they were going to redevelop the place. So the owner of it said, "I said I want you to play the last set," and I was like, "Okay." And I said, "Can I take a piece of the club home?" He said, "Well, the whole place is getting demolished." He said, "Bring tools." <laughs> so we did. Really? So we did. We brought a sledgehammer and saws and various jemmies and stuff like that, and we took the whole club apart. Really, man? Is it? Was it? Am I right in thinking it was by where the Sea Life Centre is now? Yeah. Brian? Yeah. Yeah. It's That's... where I think it's Burger King now. Is it? Next to the Sea Life Centre. Yeah. I need to go down and just do like a pilgrimage, like it's Mecca. <laughs> well, it was, yeah, it was. Uh, so everybody got to take a bit of the, bit of the dance floor and the club home with them because we basically we were dismantling it. There's one shot in yes. that thing where I'm soaring. Yeah, the, there's a pillar in the middle, halfway right? across right. the stage. Yeah, yeah. There's a pillar, and I started soaring through it, and the bouncers coming around, going, "No, no, 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 no." I'm like, no, 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 Chris said I could, t- I could do anything. And they went, no, that's where the power lines are. Oh, fuck. <laughs> wow. But yeah, that was a seminal night, and, um, which I can't remember. It was, uh, Tim, who was my tour manager at the time, for some reason said, oh, we're going to try and film. Filming in clubs was incredibly difficult in those days because you didn't have low light cameras. But yeah. this guy had got some sort of Super 8 camera or something that kind of worked. He just had filmed some of the carnage from that night and it ended up with the with the the them blowing up then we reconvened back here yeah <laughs> parted on a bit until dawn and then what went down to watch the uh the power station chimney being blown up in the morning for the video for build it up tear it down it's like the perfect well i think i mean i think they just had all this footage and i think when they were cu- cutting it they just thought build it up tear it down so this great thing and it was us demolishing the, you know demolishing the club that we're Everything had been born. Because, yeah, I mean, that club, it was literally... Every fortnight, it was, like, more and more people coming, and then we were meeting more and more people. We got the chemists to come down and play, and then it became the sort of Skint Records home club, and it was where we tried out all the records and the ideas and saw what other new rules we could break. And and, and there's a lot of mayhem went on that club. A lot of serious mischief went on there. Amazing, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine... Uh, yeah, I'm obviously a huge fan of the Chemical Brothers and you collectively have been so influential, I think, to a whole generation of people, thousands of people, people who make music now because of you guys. Um, yeah, and so you you remixed... Um, you did a couple of remixes for them, didn't you? You did Come With Us, 2002. Mm. I especially Star Guitar, and I just couldn't do it. I was... I was played with it for like three or four days and then I just went back to him and I said I can't make this any better than it is and I can't make it anywhere near as good as it is it is what it is do you mind if I don't do it um, amazing and what were they like to work with and play with or, or was I it? played with them more than I worked with them no we they when I just when I was just starting out I'm not sure if yeah I must have been Fat Boy Sim by that point 
But basically, Lindy Layton, who'd been the singer in Beats International, and I'd kept in touch with her, she said, you know that sort of music you play that's just like sped up trip hop or slowed down acid house or, you know, so that thing you play? And he said, there's people playing it in London. And so she took me to the Heavenly Social and introduced me to Tom and Ed and to the Kahuna, Big Kahuna Burger, which is another club that had the same kind of attitude. And she just took me up one weekend and introduced me to them. It's, it's like meeting kind of lost, you know, your long lost brother you never knew about. It's like, and they were like, and they were like, are you all fat? Like, yeah. And they said, oh, we love it. You know, we were playing Santa Cruz. And we originally we sort of compared notes a bit, but then we just ended up DJing with each other every, pretty much every weekend. And through that, we became really good friends. And then we ended up, you know, like, we went, used to go on holiday together. And wow. so, but we were, after a while, because we're, both quite serious about what we do and eventually knowing what we're like there's a eventually there's a little bit of kind of professional we after a while we stopped comparing notes about what we were going to do next <laughs> and things like that got, there's a little bit of friendly competition so no there were more my sort of by the end there were more my partner partying partners rather than musical partners but i mean because everyone said oh you should do a track together it's like well we, we do the same thing you know we we kind of they, you know, we need to work with vocalists, not with other producers who, who you know, produce the same kind of ideas. Definitely. But um, no, they were they were really supportive of me, and we were, you know, like I said, we did so many shows together, and um, yeah, work more more resting and playing than, than uh, working together. And uh, going through your list of remixes is just like the, I don't know, the who's who of remixes, if that's a thing. Um, yeah, obviously Body Moving, absolutely huge. That was absolutely huge. Um, Renegade Master as well, when that came out in 1998, I'll never forget hearing that for the first time and just being wowed by it. Because um, it was a hit. It was a hit a few for a few years prior to that, wasn't it? Wild yeah, thing. it was some, um, Roger was, Roger worked for Loaded and Skin. And he, uh, um, he sadly died just when he was getting really big. He had this really, really kind of underground techie sound, which everybody in New York really loved. And he so a lot of Loaded Records was based around Roger's, you know, Roger Wildchild, around his tunes. And he, yeah, just when he was becoming really big, he dropped in one day, poor love, and um, for brain aneurysm, and which was horrible obviously for everyone and then I thought it must have been fairly soon after somebody was like oh we should re-release for Renegade Master and they got a couple of remixes done and it's like and I, I remember saying Roger deserves better than this can I have a go at it mm. and um yeah and then yeah no I think he'd, I mean he'd had quite a sizable hit with it in the first place mm. Uh, and it is a great tune. It's absolutely one of those. Again, one of those. When you listen to the original that, that the vocal comes from, it's a, just a genius moment of him hearing that little rhythm and what they said and chopping four bits of it together to make another another part. So um, definitely, that was a bit of a labour of love for me, just to um, uh, yeah, just to, to preserve Roger's memory mm. in the best fashion possible. Incredible, incredible, really incredible track. Um, Groove Armada, Corner Shop, absolutely massive. You've probably spoken about them a million times already. 
Underworld King of Snake as well. That was a killer remix. I always loved that one, man. Yeah. Again, that was another one because Darren become very good friends of, of mine and, and still is to this day. It's, it's weird doing remixes for your friends because it's like you really just want it to be so good and you want to try and impress them, but also you want it, you know. Um, yeah, it was kind of, I mean, it was really weird track in the first place. And it was kind of, I think I, I went quite hard on that one, didn't I? Yeah, it's just got the vocal going, snake, snake, snake. <laughs> and then it all, hits, it all hits the ground, man. It's a really killer. I remember, I remember buying that single and flipping it over and going, oh my God, there's a Fatboy Slim remix. Well, it was, I mean, that, that was a real purple period for me. That it was a kind of, it was a sort of a three-year period where it just, I was just on a roll and, you know, everything... I just had so many ideas and they're all kind of working. It's like, how can, far can we push this? How can I do this? It's like, oh, can I do this? And that was it. But during that time, what was really lovely was I was working a lot there because there was a kind of limited gene pool of a certain style of DJ. We'd always end up doing the same shows every weekend. So I got to know party with them, got to know them really well. And yeah, Tom and Ed became really good friends of mine. And Darren Emerson became a particularly good friend of mine at that time. And it was quite weird when you're hanging out with these people and you know we'd all be, be hanging out here and you know people are just like it's a who's who you know and we'd just be going what's your new channel it's like oh I'll just play your own tune and you're just like fuck it I guess <laughs> and it's like oh and what's your on my YouTube whoa so it, yeah I and yeah and they were and who else was there? I remember there was one summer when um oh Tim Deluxe joined the fold and he was hanging out with some pirates and then he had he had he just won't do and it was just it was just like every song on the radio was mates of mine yeah and it, was, and it felt really good because it felt like we were all kind of bouncing off each other and but not so much actually actually collaborating with each other apart from the odd remix mm, uh, yeah i guess maybe just spurring each other other on in you know, ra everyone raises the bar. Everyone keeps raising the bar, like uh, Orbital. I thought you said raiding the bar. Raiding yeah, the yeah. bar. Well, yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. Probably a bit of both. <laughs> like Orbital, Left Field at that time, Underworld, uh, Crystal Method. Yeah. Well, that's Future the thing. Sound I mean, that when, there's, when there's a kind of, when there's a scene of people who are doing something that nobody else is doing, you kind of, you stick together and you, it's like, I mean, it used to be like that with DJs. You used to, you know, you'd be at an airport and you see a, a, a somebody else's record box with the stickers all over it, and you just go to stay home and try and work out who they were from the stickers. <laughs> but you'd always start talking to each other, like because you you'd be the two DJs, the, like the ones who lived this sort of outside normal hours and outside normal life and everything. And you the DJs would stick together. And you, nowadays the DJs are kind of everywhere, and you wouldn't talk to. You'd look at them and just go, oh, you know, don't know them, probably don't want to talk to them. But in the old days, you would talk to if every DJ you bumped into an airport, you'd you know be comparing notes because we were a sort of it was a community. We were a sort of a minority. Yeah. And and that's a, that's a great feeling. Like like I said, you know the idea that the original Big Beach Boutique, a uh, Big Beat Boutique, was uh, like our clubhouse, and it was like other people, you know, the, the, every new signing on to Skint would come and play there and we'd just get the measure of them. And then other people, you know, other people from slightly different scenes, like we got um, uh, Aphrodite came down and played. We, we used to play sort of jump up records and then he remixed Rockefeller Skank and then so he was in, like in the fold and Mick Jones came down and DJ'd. Uh, and, you know, and then Corner Shop came and played after full of Asher and it was, it was just like it's just, just like you know me and Damien and our mates 
That's really cool. Yeah, and uh, I think Corner Shop released a new album. Yeah. Yeah, that was really, really good. I really like it, yeah. I've always had a a soft spot for uh, what they do. Yeah, yeah, all Keller remixes. Um, I also like that Mike and Charlie I Get Live remix. I completely forgot about that. (laughs) Dan Eats Everything sent me a re-edit of it. I'm like, fucking hell, this is good. But then I I was like, yeah. Yeah, that was... I mean, that point in, like I said, it was a bit of a purple period, but also it was quite frantic kind of period in my life when I was just like running around 24 hours, seven, partying and making tunes and partying and making tunes, not much sleeping going on, not a lot of eating. <laughs> and hence some bits of it are all a little bit of a blur. But yeah, I'd actually forgotten about the Mike and Charlie tune and was presently surprised when I listened to it back. I was like, oh. It's a banger, yeah. Well, you can see what I was getting with that one. Again, it was like hearing a rhythm in what they said. Of uh, They just said something about dropping bombs. Bombs. Brighton bombs. And it sounded like Brighton bombs. Oh, right. It was just writing bombs. But if you looped it, it went Brighton bombs, Brighton bombs. And having lived through the Brighton bomb, that moment, and Brighton bombs. Oh, the Labour. Yeah, Yeah, right. That's amazing, Ryan. I love those little insights. It's, well, it's funny to listen to it years ago and go, oh, I see what I was getting at. <laughs> I don't actually remember doing it, but yeah, yeah, I can see where you're going. That one. <laughs> I can see where you're going. This is going to be interesting. Watch this guy. <laughs> That's amazing, man. That's really, really good. Yeah, you did sort of talk about a musical collage of your music, sort of throwing together parts that, that uh, yeah, become greater than the... the they become greater than the sum I suppose, of yeah. Parts. That again, that goes back to that those car journeys. When you take a whole load of samples from hugely different areas and then blend them together in a way that they actually sound like a record or like a band. I thought it was really funny when I went to American on the back of Rockefeller Skank. That sort of really, and people would just go expecting it to be a band. It's like, when did that ever sound like a band? And I'm like, oh, I suppose <laughs> it kind of does sound like a sort of twisted band. And um, so. Yeah, it's the same thing. When you take a load of little samples and chunks and loops off records and put them all together, and then at one point, all of a sudden, it sounds like a, a new record that is bigger than the sum of the parts. Yeah. Never thought of that. It's kind of the same. Yeah, you, but you had an amazing talent for doing that, for finding things that work together. Yeah, they've got, I've, there's a, a, a journalist called Chris Heath who used to edit Smash Hits, and I've known for years, and he's a really good journalist. He's very insightful and I hadn't seen him for years I met bumped into him in an airport and he said oh you know how are you doing we we're just chatting and I said oh well that's still and I said you yeah, know I'm still getting away with that I said but still jack of all trades and master of none and he said I was thinking he said I think think about your career he said what you are is a shepherd of moments and I was like that's just poetry right there it's just like <laughs> Nailed everything that I'd want to be. Yeah, rather than a great musician or a great artist or a great DJ, just a shepherd of moments. You just take little bits and, and shepherd them together into into a, a thing, be it a meme. I was just, yeah, I realised the other day, because memes now mean something different, but like uh, so much of what I do is just, a, it's just a slogan, basically. Turn on tuning, cop out, happy hour. They're all just sort of cliches or things that, you know, eat, sleep, rave, repeat, right here, right now. They just, they don't mean anything, but they just sound good as a meme. Yeah. And they can mean different things to different people if you get a really good one. And so that's kind of what I deal in. And it's just taking 
bits from here and there and, and shepherd them in, into into a thing. And, and when you're DJing, that's the same thing you do. You're taking everybody's experience of they want to come together on a Friday night and escape their boring lives or get high or get laid or whatever they want to do. And it's just like shepherding them all into a big pile, hopefully getting that collective euphoria and that collective musical experience. So, yeah, I mean, that that's... If, I, if there was ever to be a book about me, I would like it to be called Shepherd of Moments. Shepherd of Moments. That's how I'd like to be remembered. It would look good in a grace thumb, wouldn't it? That would, yeah, that's a great analogy. A shepherd of Moments. Shepherd of Moments. Spike Milligan's was the best, though, wasn't it? I told you I was ill. I told you yeah. I was ill. I don't, I don't think anybody could top that. Um, are you okay to well, Kim John, for a little while? Apart from Kim Jong-un's father. What did he get? I told you I was ill. He was called Kim Oh, Jong-un. right, yeah, sorry, sorry. That was my, my ex-wife's greatest ever joke. <laughs> she had basically, I told you I was ill. The, the House of Love was, was a place that's sort of synonymous with yourself. Um, uh, with uh, Supposedly with disco lights in the toilet and astroturf on the floor. Yeah. Uh, I've read, yeah. What, what was the House of Love? It was my house. Uh, I can't remember who coined the term the house of love. It was my house. It was like if the boutique was our clubhouse, it was the our after hours bar. So basically, everyone would just pile back to my house after wherever we'd been DJing and just have a carry on. And those carry ons could go on for days. And interesting, strange things happened during those days. <laughs> Magical thing. And yeah, and it had the the, the downstairs was a basement that none of my neighbours could hear. So we just go up. We could do whatever we wanted there for as long as we wanted. And again, it was kind of, um, you know, very, whoever had been DJing at the boutique would end up back there. And it was kind of a meeting of the minds, but it was more a melting of the minds as well. So (laughs) not much really was decided or, you know, not many huge revelations about music or the world really came back. An awful lot of excellent shit was talked. Um, So, yeah, and it was just... And then sort of various other people... Came and go, went, living there. But it was it was it was a really beautiful place because some crazy shit went on, but no one ever, no, nothing bad ever happened. No one ever, no one ever got sick or robbed anyone or we well, never got busted or you know. Maybe it was like a sacred. It was yeah. Well, I, I just we were space. just lucked out. But it was great because my <laughs> studio was in there, so the lines between the idea of getting up and going to the studio. A lot of the, the, my, the greatest tunes were made when I sort of just woke up after three hours sleep, still a little bit wired, and it's like, oh, what should I do? I'll just work on a tune. So, and then occasionally we were... I mean, some of the 303 passes were done... At the, weren't done in, you know, with a few people sitting around on the floor and we'd kind of, and kind of do it, and it's like... That would be... The, and the, definitely the Tweaker's Delight, the three, the everybody needs to throw it. That was definitely done in the middle of the night. Like about five of us sitting there just seeing how fun they said I was making all the like the, the guitar solo faces and I was like <laughs> <laughs> um, but so yeah no so it was just a crazy I uh, was crazy bachelor pad whereabouts is it in, is it in, it's in Preston Park is it yeah it's another just by Preston Park site. Yeah, my brother, my brother-in-law lives there now, so don't don't go and bother him. Oh, okay, no, I'm <laughs> I just want to see these places. Like it was such a big break. Oh, it's a really, fan. it's a really uninteresting looking Victorian end of terrace. Mm. It looked like nothing from the outside. That's the whole point. It looked like nothing from the outside, but gradually, yeah. And because when I was sort of doing a bit, well, yeah, it's like we had a, I had a stupid idea. Like, yeah, the toilet was an infinity mirror. 
nice. It's, it's not a big toilet, it's just like a toilet and a sink. So we put mirrors on all four walls and the ceiling and then set little strip lights in them. So when you were when you're on the toilet, you just looked and there was like a million news going Whoa. off in any direction. I love those things. You you go to like a science museum and they've got one of those. And you're like, yeah, this is fucking great. Or some lifts are like it, aren't they? Yeah, that's so yeah. cool. The people just stay in the toilet for hours. It's just like it was, some people got looking. stuck in there. It's quite disorientating, <laughs> if, you're fair. if you're chemically altered. Get a little bit introverted. Well, no, some people just go, well, how do I get out? <laughs> Yeah, it sounds legendary, that place. Um, it really does. Um, yeah, I honestly didn't know that um, the big... Yeah, Big Beat was named after yeah. somewhere over there. So I really do have to go and... I w- that will be a... Yeah, it's weird because we, for a while, nobody knew what to call it. The the Chems put out a compilation called Hip House and Tripno. And then... Uh, what was it? Uh, yeah, Tripno, like hip-hop mixed with techno. Amel House, now that was it. Right. Brit Hop, Amel House, Tripno. And no one could really kind of turn for what it was that we did. It was like, it was that kind of speeded up break beats, slowed down Acid House. Uh, yeah, and then someone, I don't know who first coined it, but it was named after the Big Beat Excellent. Yeah, we were, yeah, which I'll be proud of today. I mean, obviously, I'll be proud if Big Beat had a better reputation. <laughs> These days, when we say, "Oh, that was us," I think it need. I think the world needs breaks. I just, I just, the, the vibes that you had at those break nights. Um, there was, an, I don't know, there, there was something about breaks that really just had such great energy. It was good for mm. girls, for boys. There was never any ag. It was never shady or shadowy. It was always mm. fun. I think the world needs breaks. I really do. I'd love. I, I just think that. If young people had access to hearing it and what it does and like the vibes that it creates, then there's still time. Yes, so well, and the brakes always come around. They're like Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> you stick with them, then they'll come around again. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, like always, when I'm just preparing interviews, I, I, I sort of something comes into my head that's an idea that might just be a way out, stupid thing. But Spinal Tap. You know, you know the film yeah. with Must Know Spinal Tap, obviously. Like, I'm a huge fan of Spinal Tap. Why hasn't there been like an electronic Spinal Tap? Like, what? many have tried. Yeah, many have tried. Probably. I, I've been personally asked three times, "Do you want to be involved in?" You know, we're making a, a kind of DJ version of Spinal Tap, and you want to be <laughs> musical director, or do you want to be do a cameo? They just never get made. They get talked about, and I think. The subject matter isn't quite as entertaining as it is for the whole, you know, you've got the whole rocks rich tapestry laid out and you can plunder the most entertaining bits. But basically the DJ world is just a load of drugs and shit being talked about. <laughs> airports. <laughs> DJs at airports feeling really grisly because they haven't been to bed. You know, it doesn't really make for such great stories. There's been a few films that were supposed to be it, but they just, they either veer off in a different direction or yeah because there's that Dennis Pennis one set in Ibiza and then there was oh it's all gone Pete Tong Di- yeah 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 and there's yeah. what would Diplo do Diplo do do one but everyone's trying to do it but then but basically a lot of the DJs just don't want to have the piss taken out of themselves they haven't got a kind of sense and, and also most of it is just not very funny to people outside are 
Yeah, I just think there's so many rules. To, and, and I mean, to, to music production, the music production world, there's so many like silly little in jokes and things that, yeah, I, I just thought. It just, I think it's ripe for it. It'd just be such a funny thing. To I like to think that I actually have been living my life in the, the <laughs> DJ version of Spinal Tap. There's so many times you alluded to the Hello Cleveland moment, you know. <laughs> Can I leave you with a little nugget that I've just noticed? Sure, Again, because yeah. you happen to be sitting here. Okay, and yeah, you do sure. have, seem to have an eye for this, which I've just found on the internet. Mm-hmm. It's a replica, not the exact pair, but the replica of the boxer shorts that launched a thousand album titles. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, I bought a pair of those shorts in a thrift store in Seattle for my girlfriend. Oh, wow. And she used to love wearing them, and we had no idea what you'd come a long way, baby, meant, but we just thought we really, really liked it. And they were given away free with a packet of cigarettes. No way. With cigarettes? Yep. That's amazing. <laughs> wow, it's even got, like, the content of the cigarettes on the back. <laughs> That's mad. So this, yeah, the album, second album title came from... These boxer shorts, yeah. Amazing. Not really a, a good feature for a podcast. It's mainly a visual a visual gag. It's, it's a good visual gag, though. They are in mint condition. That looks like it's brand new. Well, yeah, I mean, I wish... I, I wish. I, sadly, I don't think my girlfriend probably kept them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, when she has got them somewhere, just like, oh, Christ. Because <laughs> uh, we split up, put it up around the time that album was coming out, so she probably burnt them in a fit of peat one day. Could have done, especially when the album was named that. <laughs> yeah, she could have. Yeah. Or a souvenir. Maybe yeah. Or, may, or maybe she's kept them, I don't know. I did I did bump into her uh, a couple of years ago and we had dinner and she did allude to it. I said, so I didn't see her for many, many years. And, and, I, and I said, how was it? Because um, like, just as we split up, I kind of sort of, I got really, really big, you know, and then when I met Zoe, then I was all over the newspaper and I said, was that a little bit annoying? She said, hmm, well, how do you think when you split up someone you really hate them and then you're there everywhere? She said, I left the country again. Wow. She said that she moved abroad for six months to get away from me. Cause, yeah, I do. Have, sorry about that. <laughs> That's incredible, man. I do apologise. That's incredible. Great. Well, um, thank you very much right? for speaking to me today. That's all right. It's been a pleasure. It's been a nice little trip down. It's nice to think of different memories that I've, like I said, I didn't try not to trot out stories that I've told a million times. And luckily you didn't ask the questions that I've been... Yeah, I'm really conscious of doing that. And I, I find out that just basically reading all the interviews you've done and watching all the interviews you've done is a really good uh, way to know, is to just see what you've been asked. And, and, mm. and yeah, so I try and... I, I understand that you've been... See, other people, they do times. that. They do the research, probably not as extensive as yours. They do the research... And then they, they pick out the questions that got the most interesting answers and ask me again. <laughs> but if people do that, you tend to get asked the same one. I had a really funny moment in the cafe the other day with this, this um, kid with his mum, and his mum went, my son really wanted, like, he's a bit, he's a bit um, shy, but he really wanted to say hello and ask you a question. I was like, yeah, yeah, fine. I was like, come on. He's here. He said... Where'd you get the name Fat Boy Slim? Which is the question. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I know what you would say yeah. for that. And uh, well, I've told so many different lies over the over the years, and I could never tell anyone the truth. And it's uh, it was, um, and I just said, oh, 
I said, it's called an oxymoron. It's a word that can't exist. You can't be fat and slim at the same time. And he just made me laugh. And he went, all right. I went, what's your name? And he went, um, Dexter. I went, that's a cool name. Where'd you get that name from? And he went, psycho killer. Uh, serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> He's about 10. He looked at his mum and went, serial killer. <laughs> serial killer. But a hot the fictional series. But yeah, no, hot, hot serial killer, but serial killer. Good nice. to be named after one. Great, thanks very much. Cool. Uh, no worries. I really appreciate that. Wow. Um, still can't quite believe that I sat down with Norman Kirk and spoke about his career. Um, what an absolute pleasure, what an honour it was to be invited to his house, even, to look at some of the stuff and sit down with him. Um, he's really had a huge influence on my life and the trajectory of so many people's lives. Party Animals producers, everyone loves him. Uh, he's an absolute legend. Love that guy. Thank you so much, Norman. Okay, um, yes, next time we're speaking to an amazingly talented female producer from London. Uh, she works uh, with lots of uh, 3D worlds. She generates 3D worlds in Unity for her live performances. She's a really interesting character. Uh, can't wait to get that one out there. Um, please donate to the podcast if you can. It's very much appreciated. Will get a shout out and you will join the Midi Arpeggiation Hall of Fame. But um, that's it for episode 38 and a life changing interview for me personally. Um, thank you very much for listening. I appreciate all of the support and uh, I'll see you again soon.